Makers. 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 A woman's Mujeres. women's story. A women's story. A women's storytelling platform. History makers. If I don't finish this race, everybody's going to believe women can't do it. Change makers. Nobody listens to you when you go quietly into the Law night. Lawmakers. Women's rights are human rights once and for Troublemakers. <laughs> there is no woman in the country who we are not trying to reach. These are makers. This is makers. Las primeras. These are makers. This is the makers. This is the Makers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda McCall, and today we're talking about change. People love talking about change, how it happens, why it happens, how it should happen, how it shouldn't happen, the best way to make it happen. Some people say change starts from the top. Some people say change starts from the bottom. Some people say change starts from within. There's an infinite number of sayings, songs, and speeches about change. Because change is easy to talk about, and it's fun. Take it from me. I'm talking about change right now, and I'm having a blast. But actually changing things, changing the world, Changing society, policy, people's lives, people's minds is hard. It's complicated. It's frustrating. It's dangerous. But it is possible. And Dolores Huerta is proof of that. Dolores Huerta has spent the last 50 years proving that grassroots organizing actually works. She founded the United Farm Workers with Cesar Chavez in the early 1960s and spent the next few decades organizing strikes, coordinating boycotts, and staging protests that led to historic changes and improved working conditions for farm workers in America. Huerta showed millions of people that change was possible and that even the poorest, most vulnerable citizens could change the world for the better. A monumental accomplishment that she doesn't always get credit for. In the year 2006, on May the 1st, there were probably millions of Latinos marching around the immigration issue. And they were all chanting, si se puede, when in Spanish means, yes, we can. Well, I originated that phrase, but everyone thinks that Caesar originated it, right? So I, I like to sometimes when I speak in front of audiences, audience, especially Latino audience, say, and si se puede was originated by Dolores Huerta. And of course, everybody laughs and claps when I say that. But I think that it's also important for women to be able to take credit for the work that they do. And I love to quote Benito Juarez, who was the first indigenous president of the Americas in Mexico. And he had this wonderful saying that said, respecting other people's rights is peace. Respecting other people's rights is peace. And I use that quote when I talk not only about women's right to choose, women's right to abortion, but also when it comes to anybody's right about who they want to marry, who they want to live with, in terms of gay rights and lesbian rights. You know, respecting other people's rights is peace. When it comes to respecting gay people's rights, America has a dark and distinctly unpeaceful history. There has been incremental progress over the past 50 years, and many people have dedicated their lives and lost their lives to the fight against homophobia and homophobic policies. But over the past 10 years, few people have made more of a monumental change than Roberta Kaplan. I wouldn't say I knew I was gay, but from an early age, I knew that I wanted to leave Cleveland. Coming up with a strategy about how to do so, uh, and the strategy involved going to an Ivy League college, going to law school in New York, and then moving to New York. After graduating high school, Kaplan left for college. 
She had gotten out of Cleveland, but when it came to her own identity, Kaplan's strategy was less clear. Now, just to set the stage a little bit, this was the 1980s, which may not seem like that long ago, but the world was very different back then. This was the pre-Ellen DeGeneres coming out on her sitcom 80s. This was the pre-Will and Grace 80s. This was the height of the AIDS epidemic 80s. And in many states in our country, having a sexual relationship with someone of the same gender was still considered a criminal offense. I was not out in any way in college. One of the things that very much kept me in the closet was I wanted to be a mother. I mean, in the 80s, it was almost inconceivable that you could be a, an out lesbian and have kids and a family. It didn't allow me to be who I really was. Five years after Kaplan graduated from Columbia Law School and started her career as a lawyer, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, known as DOMA. DOMA barred same-sex married couples from being recognized as spouses. It was passed by a large congressional majority and signed into law by President Bill Clinton. Yes, that Bill Clinton. During the testimony in Congress, people said truly horrific things about gay people. The House report says that it's being passed due to moral disapproval of homosexuality. President Clinton signed DOMA to law. On the one hand, I remember being hurt by it. On the other hand, the main issue was how to move it beyond that. We were going to have a child, and we thought it was important for us to be married. I got married in Toronto, but the idea that we couldn't get married in our own home state was very upsetting. My son was born in 2006. The ACLU in New York came to me because they knew I had clerked on the Court of Appeals and was familiar with the judges on the court. And until I got up, which was at two hours and 30 minutes into those almost three hours of arguments, I was the first gay person to ever say a word. Bob Smith wrote a decision that basically said that there's no right under the New York State Constitution for gay people to get married. We didn't think that we would necessarily win, but we didn't think the decision would say harmful things about gay people as parents. Homosexuality is law. We as legislators and leaders for the country are in the midst of a chaos, an attack upon God's principles. God laid down that one man and one woman is a legal union. That is marriage. One of the lessons that I frankly had learned from the New York case, where there had been a series of couples who were plaintiffs, the facts and the stories of the couples all got lost in the background. And that if you just focused on one couple, people would really be able to understand what happened. Kaplan met Edie Windsor and immediately knew that she and Thea Spire were that couple. Edie Windsor and Thea Spire met in the early 1960s. About 10 years into their relationship, Thea was diagnosed with the debilitating form of multiple sclerosis, which soon left her wheelchair bound. As Thea's illness became increasingly debilitating, Edie was there by her side, caring for her and loving her. In 2005, Edie and Thea traveled to Toronto to get legally married. Edie and Thea had been together for 44 years. Even though Edie and Thea were legally married in Canada, their marriage was not recognized in the United States, where they lived. This meant that when Thea died in 2009, Edie had no spousal inheritance privileges and was ordered to pay over $600,000 in federal and state inheritance taxes. It just was immediately apparent to me that this was the story. The mainstream gay rights establishment did not think that this was the right case to bring. My gut and my instincts and everything I'd learned as a lawyer for 20 years taught me that it absolutely was. What I do for a living is take risks. You can't be a litigator 
and walk into court every day and argue in front of judges, some of whom may be, you know, like your side of the case, some of whom may be very hostile to your case, and not be willing to take risks. Kaplan and Windsor filed the case with the Supreme Court in early 2010. The United States was the defendant. The entire case rested on the notion that forcing Edie Windsor to pay estate taxes simply by virtue of the fact that she was gay was unconstitutional and violated equal protection principles. In the eyes of the law, this case was about tax code, a tax code that pretty much only impacts the wealthy, people with big estates. But in reality, for the LGBT community, this seemingly technical tax issue held the key to ensuring that gay marriage became legal in America. If Kaplan could prove that this tax code was unfair, it would inevitably prove that not allowing gay people to get married in America was also unfair. Kaplan could, quite literally, change the world. And in this sense, Kaplan had the weight of the world and the future of equal rights in America on her shoulders. I'm pretty good at repressing things, I guess. So I try to keep my feelings about my cases and my clients separate from my own personal things. I think that's important as a lawyer to be able to do that. But obviously, it would be crazy to say it didn't have an impact on me. My wife says, and she's right about this, that I have the ability to convince myself that any client I'm working for is 100% right. There's something about this issue that I think I felt even more strongly that way. To say that Kaplan worked hard on the case is an understatement. She spent about two months preparing for her day in court, meticulously crafting her statements, even rewriting some of them over 952 times. And I had a post-it on my computer that said, it's all about Edie Stupid. We'd done all this preparation, and there really wasn't anything else that we could do to prepare. Spent the afternoon before the argument watching Johnny Test cartoons with my son in my hotel room with milk and cookies, which is probably the best thing I could do to prepare for the argument. We got there early. There was such a rush and crowd of people. I paced a lot during that hour. And then the argument starts. Okay, you only have 15 minutes. No one has identified any legitimate difference between married gay couples and straight married couples that can possibly explain the sweeping, undifferentiated, and categorical discrimination of DOMA. I was fully aware of the implications of the case, but I was very focused on my client. And I think that enabled me psychologically to kind of tell the story and bring the case of everyone else. Why are you so confident in that judgment? How many states permit gay couples to marry? Today, nine, Your Honor. Nine. And, and, and so there's been this sea change between now and 1996. There was this uh, debate between the Chief Justice Robertson and a little bit Justice Scalia and I about what had changed. As far as I can tell, political figures are falling over themselves to endorse your side of the, of the case. The fact of the matter is, Mr. Chief Justice, is that no other group in recent history has been subjected to popular referenda to take away rights that have already been given or exclude those rights the way gay people have. So I think it comes from a moral understanding today that gay people are no different and that gay married couples' relationships are not significantly different than the relationships of straight married couples. Flipping from the moral disapproval to the moral understanding is what just popped into my head there. Uh, and it was a pretty good answer, I think, because it's pretty hard to come back with a counter to that one, because it's clearly so obviously true. The court would not make their official decision for some time, but in a sense, it didn't really matter. No matter what the court's decision turned out to be, Kaplan had accomplished something monumental. She had made it impossible for the law to not respect Edie Windsor's rights, and in turn, the equal rights of all gay Americans. 
We came out of the court, it was a bright sunny day, and the crowd just went wild. And they started screaming Edie's name over and over and over again. I'll never forget it as long as I live. This has got to be one of the only, if not the only, uh, landmark Supreme Court case where not only was the client a woman, but the entire team was run by women. A few months later, the court announced their decision. They kept announcing all the other cases and put off our case till the very end. It was incredibly stressful. And when we saw on SCOTUS blog, one, Windsor was the first case, two, opinion by Justice Kennedy, three, dissent by Scalia, we knew at that point that we'd won. Pandemonium broke out in my apartment. A lot of people were crying, a lot of screaming, that was me, and just exultation. That Sunday was the Gay Pride Parade in New York City, and Edie was the marshal. It was just an incredible, incredible time. And there's still plenty of mornings where I wake up and I kind of have to pinch myself to say, is this, is this really what I did? There is no question that what Kaplan did that day in court changed the course of equal rights history in America. To me, Kaplan's story and Dolores Huerta's story are proof that change is possible, even when there's no hope, when you're the underdog, whether you're a poor immigrant picking grapes in California or a gay child growing up in Ohio or a woman listening to this podcast, you can fight and win in the battle for equal rights. So get out there and fight. Thanks so much for listening. And to hear more about Roberta Kaplan, Dolores Huerta, and other amazing changemakers, go to makers.com. Hold up. 